All right. Good morning. You okay? Happy, uh, happy Sunday to you. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve. Uh, welcome to Citadel Square. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in the midst, kind of finishing up. Happy Thanksgiving week, incidentally. That's coming. You got your turkey ready? You got your plans? Uh, we're doing brisket this for the first time this year. We're going to try brisket because I like it. I don't really have a better answer than that. Uh, we're doing brisket and turkey, so that's going to be that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Hope you are too. Uh, we are we're spending our last Sunday here in our church series, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been and then where we're going to go here today as we finish out this series. We've taken a sort of big, broad strokes uh, as we've looked at the church. We started with uh, a message from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, "I will build my church," and we looked at the foundation of the church being the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how the church is built. Uh, And then we looked at the bride. Uh, So if you want from building and that idea, that architectural analogy to the bride and the wedding day and the unity between Jesus Christ and his people. And we looked at that from Ephesians chapter 5. And then we saw uh, really the goal of why we all gather together here. Why do you join a church? What's happening as we come together as a church? And we looked at how the church is ordered with apostles, prophets, shepherd teachers, with the goal that all of us might reach maturity in Christ. And where we're going to end today is, is kind of a, an interesting passage. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, uh, I'm going to talk about where we're going to be. And what we're going to talk about today is worship. Now, worship is not uh, only or distinctively or specifically a Christian idea. Uh, Worship happens uh, in every world religion, whether you're atheist or theist, uh, whether you believe in life after death or you don't, every single human on the planet worships something. We all ultimately prioritize and order our lives around something. And the question we have is a, uh, is a church that gathers and sings and praises the name of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ is what is happening when we worship? How do you come to church What is happening when we gather here together, when you get up early on Sunday morning, or you get up about 10 and you make it here by about 10.30, and you make it into the church? What is going on when we gather? What should the posture of our hearts be as we gather? So I want you thinking about that idea. Do we come to church the same way we go to the grocery store? Kind of coming in and expecting to uh, exchange my money for religious goods and services and things that I need to get going in my week. Do I come to the church like I go to the mechanic where I get a little bit of alignment happen, I get my fluids checked and then I'm back on the road and on my way? Do I come to the church like a sporting event where I'm mostly a spectator and I'm expecting a great game I'm expecting interesting and exciting things to happen, but I really don't participate in any meaningful way. I arrive, I sit, I watch, and I leave. Do I come to church maybe like a museum? We're in a church that was built in the 1850s, and you go look at these beautiful stained glass windows, and we walk in, and we feel like there has been something happening here for 160 plus years. 
And do we come into this place thinking about what God used to do and hear stories of how God used to work and what he used to be doing? That was then. I'm not really sure what he's doing today, but I like to hear good stories about history. Do I come in as a Christian and into like a classroom where I come in and I'm eager to learn some new things about God, maybe some things I haven't heard before, I haven't learned before, or didn't know about the Bible before. It's really just an educational experience. And what I want to show you from David's life is how this man, at the end of his life, we're going to look at one chapter here, 2 Samuel chapter 24. So turn all the way to the end of the chapter. I want to show you David's heart as a worshiper. I want to show you what it looks like for David to encounter God and to order his life and to orient the way he thinks and the way he acts around worship. And we're going to take a look at really a last moment in his life that I think really captures for us who David is and how he thinks and how he operates in his life. 2 Samuel 24. Are you all there? Okay, you're all there. 2 Samuel 24. Before we jump in, let me, you see how the chapter starts with David's census. Now, you can just scan those first eight or nine verses. I'll summarize them for you quickly here in a minute and give you an idea of what's going on so we can jump in and get to the, I think, the part that is going to be really instructive for us as a church. All right? Before we do that, let's pray. Ask God for his grace and wisdom and insight as we look into his word this morning. Father in heaven, as we gather, we pray for uh, illumination to happen in our hearts and minds that we would gather here today uh, seeking to hear from you and to leave this place reordering our thoughts and our feelings and our affections, the decisions we make, that we would uh, live in light of the truth of the passage that we're going to see. And would you give us the heart of true worshipers here this morning? Would you instruct us and teach us and show us from David's life the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus Christ? We give thanks that we can come and hear from you in these few moments together. So would we be encouraged and exhorted to be the men and the women that you call us to be in our families, in our workplaces, in our uh, education, in our vocations, and the things that you've called us to, that we would be true worshipers. In Christ's name, amen. Now, 2 Samuel 24 is broken up into three encounters. The first encounter is David and Joab. Joab is one of David's generals. The second one is between David and his seer, or his prophet. David has kind of a court prophet, a guy named Gad. And then the remainder of the passage is going to be a conversation between David and a guy named Aruna, or Ornan, if he's got a different name in 2 Chronicles. Now, in the beginning of this passage, uh, I want you to just just look with me at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So at the beginning of this passage, God has an issue with Israel, and uh, he releases David to make a bad decision. And what we're going to see in this passage is that David decides to do a census of the military. He decides to count his military strength and his power. Uh, And as we go through this passage, you're going to see that that is going to be something that causes great problems for David. 
it's going to expose something about David. We don't really get the reasons behind why this is a sin for David, but we start with there being a problem, that God is displeased with where the nation stands, and he allows David to make this census. Now, David says, I want a census of all the military men. This is a census that takes not over nine months to happen, and you see that here in the first nine verses. Joab says, Dave, this is not a good idea. I don't think this is wise for you to start counting your military because I think, David, this is a particular temptation for you that you're about to fall into. But the king's word prevails and Joab goes out and he counts and he goes uh, all throughout the land of Israel, counting. And you see the end there in verse 9, uh, 24 verse 9, Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. He's got a million-man army. David is at the end of his life. He has been through uh, difficulty, if you know the story of David's life. He's been on the run. He's experienced uh, false accusation. He's had spears thrown at him. He's been on the run in caves in fear for his life during the entire period of his Uh, where he submitted to God's purposes in his life while Saul was the king. Now, at the end of his life, here David is. David has complete reign and rule over all of Israel, and he does something here that I think we're going to have to kind of intuit from the passage, but David starts to pat himself on the back. And he starts to look out over his mighty army, over his mighty kingdom, and he starts to make decisions that for David are going to be dangerous. Now, if you know the story of David's life, suffering isn't as much of a threat to David as success is. And David is in a position of authority and responsibility and victory as God's man over God's people. And when he does this, after nine months of counting the army, we're going to pick up his response to this bad idea that he had. And what I want you to see through this passage is David's heart, because it's incredibly instructive for us in the way that we uh, relate to our Heavenly Father. You're going to see themes here that help us understand what it means to have a relationship with God that affects not just our head, not just our heart, but our, our hands and the way we live our lives. Okay, so look at verse 10 with me. You with me so far? You see what we're seeing? David made a bad call. Joab tries to rebuke him. David says, no, I'm still going to do it. Nine months goes past, and now verse 10 happens. Look at verse 10. David's heart struck him. You ever have that? You ever sin, and all of a sudden, you, you haven't been paying a lot of attention, but then something happens in your life where you get exposed, and you realize, I have done wrong. And this passage begins with conviction, confession, and repentance. See, it's only the people who were, you wouldn't, uh, this is normal for kings to do. It's just not good for God's kings to do. Where are God's kings supposed to have their trust and their hope? They're supposed to have it in God. He's supposed to represent as God's man over God's people that our hope is not the strength of men or the strength of horses, but his strength is in the Lord God alone. And now David is seeing the decisions that he's made. It's taken nine plus months for this to happen, and he's come to a spot now. Now his heart strikes him. 
He, he's, he's smitten in his heart over what he has done. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Excuse me, foolishly. So the very simple observation we can make at this point is that when you recognize that you have sinned against the Lord, what ought you to do? You ought to confess, you ought to repent, and you ought to get right with God. That's the beginning of this narrative, that David, when confronted with sin, responds appropriately. Is David a perfect man? No. David's a correctable man, and that's important. So David has all of his leaders come back and say, Dave, we told you this was a bad idea. And now David falls under the conviction and he begins to confess and he begins to repent before the Lord saying, Lord, I've sinned greatly. I have done very foolishly. Verse 11, look at how how the, the narrative moves forward. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. And here's what it says, verse 12. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Now, God's about to say, go get your switch, son. We're going to have a conversation. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in their land, in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now, let me talk about this just for a second. We're, uh, we're modern day Christians, right? And there's probably, there might be another. But a lot of times when we read the scriptures, I think we have a tendency to forget that we live in an open system. And what do I mean by that? I mean, remember how when we we did Revelation for the past 15 years? You guys remember that? And we spent time in Revelation. And one of the things you saw in Revelation was the spiritual and the physical started to align and get closer and closer and closer. You remember that? Now, here's a passage where we know that David is sorrowing over his sin and God is not about to reject him, but God's about to discipline him. And you have a passage here that shows that God is about to respond specifically with chastising for David's sin. And I want to just highlight this for a second. A lot of times for us, we don't do a good job of understanding the sin in our lives alongside the consequences in our lives. So that we get this wrong a lot of times. So that sometimes we go all the way over here and we say, every single bad thing in my life, God's judging me for sin. Every flat tire, every missed parking space, uh, every time I, I you know, lose something important to me, that God's kind of around every single corner, every single time I'm late, every raise I don't get, God's kind of, nope, 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 nope. And that we have this picture of God to where he's, he's kind of this, like, this harsh taskmaster where he's always snapping at you. 
And we turn into like these nervous squirrel Christians. We just, we're never, where are we going? What do we do? I don't know if God's happy or sad. Is he mad? I'm not sure what am I going to do. I don't, oh, and I'm just anxious and crazy. The other way we go is we go, well, I'm a Christian and I don't really reap what I sow anymore. So that my Christian life becomes this kind of ongoing recognition that, yeah, I'm a sinner, but being a Christian means I have a trump card and I really don't have a lot of consequences for life. So that my inner dialogue as a Christian is really limited when it comes to humility and repentance. And what David is going to show us in this passage is kind of this third way to where we're, we live between this hardness of heart where we're never humble, we never repent, we never really apologize, our marriages aren't characterized by a tenderness and a softness and an acknowledgement of our sin that requires repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And then over here where we're just anxious all that, we're never sure if God is happy, we're never sure if we're in right relationship with God, we're always just scared and anxious. And David's going to show us this middle way that is going to come and create this kind of true worship and knowledge of God that creates such stability in his life. So what would you choose? And you notice the consequences of David's sin. They get shorter in duration, and they get uh, more intense in their severity. So that you can have three years of famine, where we can strike the provision that's in the land. Now, honestly, do you think David's going to suffer if there's a famine in the land? He's the king. Probably not. He probably isn't. Now, what about three, what is it, three months? Three months on the run from your enemies. David's got the most protection in the entire land. He's well, you know what precedes this chapter is 2 Samuel 23. You know, you know I went to seminary for that. 23, and then it's 24. You gotta pay a lot of money to learn this stuff. 23 is a list of David and his mighty men. These are bad boys, and he's surrounded by, these are the secret service, and David's got the best of the best around him. You think his enemies are going to be a problem for David? Probably not. So what David is about to tell you, David is about to expose his heart and show you what he believes about God when he's confronted with sin and smitten with sorrow. He's going to show you who God is to him in that moment. You with me? Let me, let me, I'm going to jump on this with both feet just for a second. When you confess, you expose the, the applied theology of what you believe about God. When you sorrow over sin, see, a lot of times we can get confronted with sin and we'll go, well, I'll just kind of manipulate the circumstances and make sure I don't lose face and I don't lose my reputation that much and it really doesn't cost me that much and I was just angry in that moment and man, allergies are bad today and I don't really need to confess and sorrow over sin and repent. I'm just gonna move on and not do that hard work. But when you take sin seriously and you deal with sorrow over sin, confession and repentance that you have done wrong, you are demonstrating who you believe God to be. Because some of us, when we confess, we go, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to work a lot harder. 
and David doesn't do that. Or we confess and we say, God, I know the judgment's going to come right around the corner. What do I need to do to feel more sorry? I need to kind of sit in my sin for another week or two before I really receive God's forgiveness. Because we really believe that God kind of dispenses mercy and grace. Like he only, he's only got a little bit. And he just sprinkles it on us a little bit at a time. So we got to kind of do penance. But David now exposes who he believes God to be. Look at verse 14. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. In the Hebrew, distress means the narrows. It means you're in a tight place. And David feels the the pressure and the anguish of sin and sorrow and guilt and shame. And he's in this tight spot. And here's what gets him out of that. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. Is your relationship with God like that? Do you, when you confess, do you come before God saying, God, I will take whatever it is from your hand that are consequences of this event? Because I believe your mercy is great. And one of the problems for Israel throughout the, uh, the exilic time, this happens in Zechariah and in Obadiah, is that God rebukes the nations around them for furthering the disaster upon his people. That David recognizes. Now imagine David's story. David, if David falls into the hands of his enemies, he's had his son try to take over the throne. He's had uh, people try to chase him. He's had Saul try to throw spears at him. He's had people try to give Saul Uh, information about him and keep him locked up in a city. David has been on the run. He's felt the pressures of all of these things. But David would rather go through the consequences of his sin hand in hand with God than hand in hand with anybody else. And the beautiful thing about this passage is what we see next. See, David's theology, a lot of times when we sin, we move away from God, right? When we sin, we move away from relationships. David's theology is such that when his heart smites him, his theology moves him toward God. That he runs to a God who is rich in mercy. So here's this conviction that David has. Let's go through it with God. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there... Uh, And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the far north. Beersheba is in the far south. This pestilence hits the entire nation. The same uh, district in which David has just numbered all of his military men. And there died of the people uh, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity. Say amen. Come on, say amen. Amen. Aren't you glad that David was right? That he held the hand of a God who was rich in mercy. Now verse 17, verses 15, I'm sorry, uh, 15 and 16 are from God's perspective. Verses uh, 17 is back to David's perspective. David opens his hands to the consequences that he's about to receive from the Lord. And God, 
lays out the consequence, but the consequence isn't three days. This judgment starts in the morning and it lasts until noon. Is God rich in mercy? David was right. Amen? And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now watch this, textually. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. The wrath of God falls and takes 70,000. What follows is the mercy of God and the restraint of God, so that there's wrath wrapped around this text in mercy. Isn't that good news? Can you imagine, let's just imagine together, this is a horror movie. Let's imagine this, this moment where you get up Monday morning and God gives you what you deserve for the whole day. Where God immediately judges every thought, word, and deed. And that's your whole Monday. How, I mean, how many hours do you think we would make it before God just goes, I, I mean, it's 7.15 in the morning. Right? So do you see what a gift, confession, repentance, and sorrow over sin is? So here's God restraining the wrath that is about to fall. And now we look back at David. And David's verse 17 is in the middle of 15 and 16. Watch. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. Well, that's happening in the midst of the pestilence falling on the land. The same land where he just counted all of his military might. God is now taking it apart right at the level of where his confidence was. You thought you were strong? I'm going to start taking your strength away. And David, as he observes the consequences of his sin, does something that demonstrates his heart to us again. So his heart uh, is exposed in the beginning with confession and repentance and sorrow over sin. His heart is exposed when he says, let's fall into the hand of the Lord because his mercy is great. Now his heart is exposed again in verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I've sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David now has moved in this story from a leader and a king who wants to rest in his military might and power to the one who will lay himself down for his sheep. He recognizes the weight of leadership and what it is costing people for him to sin. So, the text stops at this point. We have David and Joab. Now we have David and Gad and the wrath of God falling. And we come to this place called the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And we have confession and sorrow over sin and repentance and trusting the mercy of God. And now we have this moment between confession and repentance and the mercy of God and the wrath of God to where there's this narrow window that opens where God is about to provide the way of healing. 
And it comes on the heels of David saying, strike me, not the sheep. Okay, you with me so far? Look at verse 18. Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Gad says, wrath is coming. David says, take me, not the sheep. Gad returns and says, here's the way of salvation. Go to this place, the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Verse 19, so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. Now, this text begins with David and his military generals. And then it moves to Joab, the general, and all of the army. And then it moves to God judging and letting pestilence run wild throughout the land upon the military men. And now we have a moment between David and not a military man. We have David and an agricultural man. We have David and one of his subjects. Now you can imagine, here's Aruna threshing the wheat. The wheat is always threshed at a high place where there's a breeze where you can throw the wheat and the chaff into the air. The chaff blows away, the wheat falls down. You take the wheat and you make whatever you make with wheat. Bread, other stuff, real important. I'm a man of the earth. Ruggedly indoorsy, I like to say. So... uh, David is about to have a conversation with one of his subjects. Now imagine how this conversation is going to go. Here's this, this subject, Aruna. He's threshing the wheat, and he hears, hey, man, it sounds like there's a pestilence. There's a plague happening. Nobody can explain it. We don't know where it came from, and man, it's bad. And here comes Dave and his servants hustling up the hill to talk to me. I wonder how this is going to go. When Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Dave, I've heard about a plague. I hear it's real bad. I heard it's taken 70,000 people of our military fighting men. Dave, do you know that? Yeah, I know that. I've heard about it. God gave me a way out. Really? Well, what's the way out? I need to buy your threshing floor. I need to buy the land that belongs to you. Now, what, what, if you're Aruna, here comes the king in all of his regalia. It's David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he's coming to ask me something. Verse 22, Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. This is a nice guy. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledge, and the threshing sledge. Let me try again. And the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Now, we are about to have a moment where David's heart is exposed one more time. Sorrow over sin, confession and repentance, letting his applied theology drag him before God who is rich in mercy. 
God restraining the judgment, God providing a way so that the plague may be averted from Israel. And now here is an opportunity for David to have exactly what he needs to avert the plague from Israel. What do you think David is going to do? How is David going to respond to this opportunity to remove the plague from Israel that is a consequence for his sin? What do you think? Verse 24, the king said to Aruna, what? No. I love this. Church, please listen to this. This is so important to your spiritual life. No. No. I will not take this opportunity that you provide to step in and handle the sin that is between me and the Lord. I will not do it. No. I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Do you know what this shows me? That there is a way for you to live your Christian life in such a way that your relationship with God costs you nothing. David has such an inner fortitude in his relationship with God that he will lay hold of the feet of God and plead for mercy. He will come and live his life according to the word. Do you know what a burnt offering is? A burnt offering is the first offering that is given to the people of Israel in the book of Leviticus. It's a devotional offering. The offering is not eaten. The offering is totally and completely burned up. And it's this entrance into a relationship with God where our lives are meant to be wholly devoted and we're meant to experience and understand that the only way that we enter into the presence of God is through sacrifice. Someone has to pay. And David understands this relationship with the Lord so well and says, worship that costs me nothing is worth nothing. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system where every time that you would come, burnt offerings are offered in the morning and at night. They're consistent offerings. They're a consistent recognition that all of my life is meant to be devoted to the service of God. And when I come with... uh, animals into worship of God. I come through sacrifice, which means every time I come into the presence of God, it costs me something. I lose. I go with fewer animals than I arrived with. Why? Because what is more important to me is being right with God than having lots of stuff. What's more important to me is resolving this sin problem that is in my heart that I might be made right with God than anything else so that every time I come to worship, my bank account gets smaller. The amount of animals I have goes down and we don't even use them for anything. We totally burn them up. And David says, I won't let This opportunity hijack my spiritual life. God is too important to me. You with me? You see this? David says, no. 
God is too valuable for me, for me to let you give a sacrifice for my sin. No! So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings, which are offerings of devotion and sin, and peace offerings, which are offerings of fellowship and relationship. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, there are some important things for us to take away from a passage like this. Can you smell the aroma of Jesus Christ in this passage? Can you, do you see how, do you know where this is? You may go, I've never heard of an Aruna or a Jebusite, let alone threshing. Uh, uh, in 2 Chronicles 3, Solomon builds the temple on this site. What David does is he buys this whole site and he says, this is where the temple is going to be. And the site of Aruna the Jebusite is also in 2 Chronicles 3 called Mount Moriah. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? Mount Moriah is where Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And God provides the ram in the place of Isaac. And now we come to David's day. And we have David, the king of Israel, the only one who can avert the plague from Israel, who now sacrifices and gives so that the plague would be averted from all of his people. You see where I'm going with this. Matthew chapter 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. That what David does in this moment is establish the worship center for all of Israel. So that when Solomon erects the temple and it is completed and designed, he says, when people experience pestilence, may they pray toward this place and find forgiveness and reconciliation. That this becomes the site, the, the center of the place where repentance and sorrow over sin and confession and judgment and mercy and uh, a sacrifice that makes the way for true reconciliation to happen happens in this place for the next thousand years. <clears throat> and the miracle of a passage like this. When we think about walking as Christians in 2021, is seeing that now as we come into relationship with God, we have sin that we cannot atone for, right? That I can't take my sin away. There's no amount of sacrificing and giving and serving and costing me that ever makes me right with God. I need the king of Israel to stand between me and God and to say, strike me, let these sheep go. And I need a perfect king to stand up between the wrath of God and my confession and repentance and say, let your wrath fall on me, not for sin that I have committed, but for sin that they have committed. You with me? You see how, how this text is working to, to draw us into a greater understanding of what it means to worship Jesus Christ. Because the scandal of the gospel 
is not that you come and bring a sacrifice, but that the king gave a sacrifice that might cost you nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you receive mercy because the king didn't just give a uh, sacrifice. He didn't just give some money. He gave his life. He gave his perfect life that you were ransomed with precious blood like a lamb unspotted, Peter says. So here we are in 2021 and I want you to start thinking about your spiritual life because now this expectation of worship for us is incredibly important for the way that we live our lives. This idea of coming and offering to God that which costs me nothing is an incredible occupational hazard for the Christian. Because if you come to church into this place and expect, you know, how do I say this in a way that makes you feel encouraged? Listen, if your Christian life is essentially about convenience and essentially about opportunities and it's essentially about having Jesus in this corner of your life but not having Jesus as Lord over your life, if you come into this place and go, well, I'm waiting for them to impress me. I'm waiting for them to play the songs I like. I'm waiting for this guy to agree with my own personal convictions. If there's not a healthy dose of he who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, then we are in spiritual danger. Let me, let me prove it to you. Turn to Romans 12. And I want to show you Romans 12, how this connects together. Romans 12, verse 1. Watch what Paul says. This is no less of a conviction, no less of a heartfelt worship response when we now know the gospel and see the gospel and see what Jesus has done for us. Paul lays it out in Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters of theology, here's what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the what? Mercies of God. What is the essential response of the Christian when we come to church? It's to worship God. It's to ascribe worth to God because of the massive amounts of mercy that he has poured out to us in Jesus Christ. It's not, we don't come to evaluate. We don't come to critique. We don't come necessarily to see if whether or not uh, I, I agree. We come to look away from ourselves, look toward Jesus Christ, and say, by the mercies of God, this is how we live. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice. I had a seminary professor said one of the main problems with the living sacrifice is it keeps trying to get off the altar. And boy, we all feel this. See, unless you lay hold of the mercy of God and the mercy of God starts to saturate your heart, you will always trend toward living for yourself. 
that you won't have the spiritual fortitude to say, no, I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. My relationship with him is too important. I'll lose my reputation because I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. I will give my money because I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. I have experienced and tasted of his mercy so that now I present not just my hand, my feet, my whatever. I present my what? Whole body. As a living sacrifice, God, do whatever you want to do with me today. God, however you want me to act in my marriage, I will act. God, I have tasted of the mercy of God where you have forgiven my sin and restored our right relationship. If I have to lose reputation in the eyes of the world, I will do it. If I have to give financially, if I have to give of my time and my preferences and my desires to make it known that you are precious to me, I will do it because I will not sacrifice to God that which cost me nothing because it cost him everything. He gave it all for us. He submitted his whole body, his whole life. He didn't go into three years, three months, three days. He went into three hours of the wrath of God for us. And Paul says, in light of the mercy of God that you have tasted, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know what that word spiritual is? It's not spirit as in P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. It's uh, the word we get uh, L-O-G-I-K-O-S, logikos. It's where we get the word uh, rational or logical. In light of tasting the mercy of God, this is the only right and good response to offer all that I am, all of who I am, all of my desires and preferences and, and things that I want in my life and to submit them under God's will in my life because I have tasted of the mercy of God. It's rational. It's normal. It's exactly what a Christian should do. We don't sacrifice to receive God's mercy. We sacrifice because we already have it. We give and we serve and we love because we already have complete acceptance because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's rational. It's normal. Don't be conformed to this world. You know what I love about this is that David's got an opportunity to be conformed to the world and go, oh, you can take care of the sacrifice? Will you do that for me? That's good. I'll just, you do the sacrifice thing over there. That's good. I'll be right with God. That there needs to be some courage in our Christian lives where we say, we as a family don't do that because of the mercy of God. You with me? Dads, there needs to be times where you talk to your family and you say, we don't do that because of the mercy of God. We will give and we will serve and we will love because of how much Jesus has given and loved and served us. That we model for our children, not this attainment of our preferences with Jesus on the side who just so happens to agree with me all the time. 
But we model a Christ is first. We pray to him. We give to him. We seek to be used by him because we have tasted of the mercy of God. That's what Christians do. It's normal. How do we do it? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing. Do you know that your Christian life requires a whole lot of testing? Do you know that? You can't turn your brain off. David has this moment where he could do something easy or he could do something godly. He could do something convenient or he could do something righteous. And he says, no, we pick this because I know what it means to taste the mercy of God. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see that? So when we come into this place, we come presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, being reminded of the beautiful wonder of the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And then we rise from this place and we sing together and we're about to celebrate communion together, remembering again that we've been reconciled by what Jesus has done for us so that we now live our lives as a fragrant offering of what God wants to do in our families and in our marriages and in our workplaces. I mean, when you go to work, is there a Christian courage in your spine where you say, no, I've tasted of the mercy of God? We don't do that. I don't speak like that. Because I have tasted of the forgiveness and the mercy that God has poured out to me in Jesus Christ. You see, I mean, I could keep going with illustrations on this. You want me to keep going? Is it just too convicting? How do you feel? Where are you at? Right, do I, okay, I'm gonna keep going. Good, you asked for it. Do I model for my kids that my life is fundamentally about my comfort and convenience? Or is my life meant to be a fragrant offering? Like, my kids catch more than I teach. I will tell you by the devotionals that we do. You know, one guy laughed at that. <laughs> you all should have been laughing at that. Is the subtext of my Christian life, I go to the place where people agree with me. I don't need to change. They need to change. Is the subtext of my Christian life, I love my weekends. I'll make it to church 20 times a year. You asked for it. Is the, the subtle movement of my life toward my own personal preferences and delights and joys and Jesus is here to kind of help me in my life to go up and to the right? This, we live, we live in one of the number one slash two vacation destinations in the world. Do you know the cultural idolatry in the city in which you live that trends toward money and comfort and success and uh, ed education and accomplishment and uh, financial freedom? And do you feel that out there? Do you know that that's a threat to your heart? Do you know that for you to battle the cultural idols that are in our city, it's going to require you tasting of the mercy of God? It's, it's going to have to get down into your heart. 
that the practices of repentance and sorrow over sin when it's exposed in my life are opportunities for me to draw near to God again and taste of his mercy again. Do you know that? I want our kids to know, I want the kids in our kids' ministry to know that we consider our bodies a living sacrifice, that we will take time to pursue the Lord together as a family, that we don't do necessarily, look, I'm not saying don't take vacations, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is invest in modeling for your friends and your family and your kids the fact that you have such an intimate relationship with God that the mercy of God matters to you more than anything else. And then go to church and sing like you mean it. Come into this place and receive from the hand of God the freedom and the joy of knowing that God has forgiven your sins. Because the gospel is too good to be true if you're telling me that Jesus Christ will take the consequences for my sin to bring me in that I might receive mercy, free and clear. That's what Ephesians says, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. Father in heaven, may we be men and women who submit to you lives consecrated for your purposes. God, may we be people who have tasted of the mercy of God, that even now here today might there be people who who lay hold of the feet of God and whatever suffering or sin or situation they find themselves in and would they with confidence say I will go through it with my hand in the one whose mercy is great. So Father, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, would we be reminded again of your goodness to us that we come to the table accepted and forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Would our hearts be filled with joy because the king has laid down his life for us. The king has said, I will take the wrath of God that these sheep may go free. Father, how beautiful the gospel is. May it pervade our lives and our hearts and our speech and our marriages and our parenting and our workplaces, the classrooms we go into, the conversations with roommate, would we consider ourselves a living sacrifice poured out for your good purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.